Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com.au. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you that you're a God who speaks to us, a God who is uh, a relational God, a God who um, desires for us to know, to know you and to, uh, to live out uh, our faith. And so we pray now as we get into your word, as we hear from the Bible, as we hear from 1 Samuel, uh, you'll speak to us, you'll convict our hearts, your spirit will be at work changing us to consider what it looks like to live under you as our king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, let me go back in history, a, a hundred years into the, to the early 1900s, uh, where scientists first discovered this chemical mineral called radium. I want to tell you guys a little bit about this. I was watching a history thing, and I learned about this. I really want to share it with you guys, because, you know, I'm more than just movie references and pop culture. Um, radium became all the rage back in the early 1900s. It was a substance that could glow in the dark, essentially, and people were excited about this new and exciting thing. They were told it was good for human health, that it could cure cancer, arthritis, high blood pressure, fever, constipation, and improve vitality amongst the elderly. Right? Everyone wanted, their hand, wanted to get their hands on radium. They had, um, they had spas with radium in the water. They advertised that as therapeutic. The cosmetics industry, they would market this stuff as liquid sunshine. Wow, that sounds good, doesn't it? Using it in creams and toothpaste and so forth. But one of the earliest uses was in the early 1920s. Uh, it was, radium was used as paint on small watches, right? On watches and military dials uh, during the war so they, could, uh, so they could glow in the dark. That's what radium would do, it would glow in the dark. And this type of work, painting radium on uh, watches and dials, it was very delicate work. It required delicate hands and delicate fingers, right? So many of these factories, they hired young women to do this delicate work. I'm sure there are men who are very delicate as well. But they, they hired young women to do this. They would use these paintbrushes, and they were instructed at times to lick the tip of the paintbrush, uh, to have a finer point to apply the radium uh, onto these small dials, right? And now, uh, in the process of licking the tip of the, uh, the paintbrush, they were ingesting radium in the, in the process. Again, radium was all the rage. People would happily put on their teeth, their lips, uh, it would get on their clothes, so when they go out at night, they'd glow up. And these radium girls, that's what they were known as, these radium girls working in these factories were also known as ghost girls because it was just cool to have radium all over you. It was all the rage. Everyone wanted to get their hands on it. Now, here's the thing about radium that we know now in 2023. Radium is radioactive. These radium girls were being exposed to high levels of radium, radiation poisoning. And what they thought was good for their health was, in fact, very, very harmful. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, isn't the story of radium and this, the story of these radium girls, isn't that really the story of our humanity in many ways? When something is marketed as good and everyone else is doing it, we want what they're having. Never satisfied, always wanting more, wanting what others have, hoping it'll bring a new sense of satisfaction, freedom, security, or pleasure. And so we invest our time, our money, our energy, our mind, and our emotions banking on it, that it'll deliver us from the mundane, the insecurity, the displeasure that we feel about life at times. Yet only to find that that thing is going to end up disappointing us. It'll be short-lived. And at worst, discover that it's more harmful than helpful for our emotional or mental or physical well-being. 
It's the same story for many of us in church, isn't it? We call ourselves Christians, but we come to God and, and sometimes God himself isn't enough, isn't it? We want more. And we look at the world around, we look at what others have, and we are often tempted to think we're missing out on more. If we just had some of that radium, oh, life would be so much better, wouldn't it? It's an issue that the people of God also had thousands of years before us, here in 1 Samuel chapter 8 of our Bibles. They make a request for something, more than, more than God. And it's like a mirror to our own hearts as we read this. We're going to see how this ancient story, thousands of years ago, is so relatable and applicable to us today. Let me give you some context, though. Uh, to go back in chapter 1 and 2, uh, what we've missed out, if you missed out, uh, chapter 1 and 2, we heard about a, a barren woman uh, named Hannah who, by God's grace, was given a son named Samuel. And Hannah's story is a really important one. It sets up the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel. And it goes back, and it goes back to uh, um, what she says about who God is. In chapter 2, she shares about uh, this great God, this God who provides, this God who's, a, who's the king over the world, over the universe. It really sets the foundation for us. She sings about an anointed one as well in that chapter, in chapter 2. Uh, God's anointed one, a king that will come. Now Samuel's role, when Samuel was born, he was to be a prophet and he was be, to be a priest for the people. That means he communicated to God and he uh, brought God's word to the people around him, to, to Israel. They were God's people in the Old Testament. He played a leadership role to the, to the nation of Israel during that time. And so from chapter 3 to 7, what we hear about a lot is um, things going, going sour, things not going well because Samuel isn't involved. We hear about corrupt, pri a corrupt priesthood. We hear about the enemy, the Philistines, the archdemesis of Israel in much of the Old Testament. They show up and the Israelites lose, uh, lose thousands of people in battle. And up to this point, whenever they were in need, what they would do is they'd cry out to God and God would deliver them. Um, if you go into your Bibles, you know there's a book called Judges as well. This happened before 1 and 2 Samuel. Judges were leaders, military leaders that were, were raised up by God to lead people to victory, lead the people of Israel to victory. And in chapter 7, we hear about God's people calling out again and Samuel being consulted and victory coming again. But here we are in chapter 8, and the current is changing. God has flexed his, flexed his power multiple times already for the people. He, show, he has shown them many times that he's sovereign, but now the people want a king. They want a human king to rule and reign over them. That's what we're going to hear about here in chapter 8. You want your, your Bibles open because that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go through chapter 8 together and unpack it for us to understand it. All right, let's, look, let's look at this request that they make. Um, we're told from the outset, Sam has, Samuel, Sam has sons. He appoints them as Israel's leaders. They aren't the best leaders. They don't follow Samuel's ways. They take bribes. They pervert justice. And so what happens? Verse 4. So all the elders of Israel, they gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Wow, that sounds rude, hey? You're old. Uh, they asked for a king. Very simple request. Now we've been primed for this, haven't we, Hannah? She sang about a king that's to come. But not only did Hannah sing about this a few hundred, uh, not only sang about this, a few hundred years before this, in the time of Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, I've got it on the screen, uh, chapter 17, while Israel is wandering in the wilderness after coming out of Egypt, escaping slavery, God anticipated this, and he foresaw this would happen, that they will ask for a king. Verse 14, when you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, 
be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. It goes on to say that in the same chapter that this king shouldn't take multiple wives. This king shouldn't be greedy and massing heaps of gold and silver for themselves. This king is to collate and write all the laws of God and pull that together and uh, as the Holy Scriptures and to meditate on it and to live by it and rule by it. That's here, there in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So you can read that in your own time. But that's the type of king that God is going to uh, establish for the people of Israel. There's nothing wrong with asking for a king. God permits it. He anticipates it. He knows it's going to happen. But when you look at those instructions on who this king might be, well, it's really nothing like the kings of the nations around them, is it? But there's more to it. There's something fundamentally wrong with this request here in chapter 8. Verse 6, chapter 8, verse 6. When they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. You, could, you read this and you think, oh, did Samuel's feelings get hurt? Is he displeased because he doesn't like, they don't like his sons, they don't like his corrupt sons that he's appointed? I get that, right? His decisions, he, he's taking it personally. But maybe it's not so much that. Samuel brings it to God in verse 7. The Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you that they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Here's what's wrong with the request. By asking for a king, they've rejected God. How? How does asking for a king reject God? What, what's, what's so wrong for asking for a king? Well, let's deconstruct this for a, for a second, right? Um, when, when, what, when, when do we know that something's wrong? When do we know something is wrong? Because things that are wrong aren't always black and white, is it? I heard someone else explain this, uh, so let me try. Um, we first need to consider the, the nature of the action. If, if something is wrong, we need to consider the nature of the action. There are some actions in the world today that we just know are plain wrong, right? Like murder, uh, rape, stealing, things that aren't yours. We just know that they're wrong. It's agreed upon by society. But sometimes there are things that just aren't clearly wrong at times, right? Uh, I know there are many people in the room who play badminton, all right? Now, you might have your badminton racket, and I had to confirm this with Dan just before, and you might be practicing your swing, right? Because you need a technique to your swing. You, you, for me, I just thought you just hit a shuttlecock, but you actually, there's technique to it, right? So you might be swinging your badminton racket around, practicing your swing, uh, you know, I think of guys who play golf, and they're always just like, everywhere they're going, they're just like doing this. Um, but that's what we do, right? We practice our technique. And so, you know, you might be swinging your badminton racket. No harm done, right? The action of swinging your badminton racket, no harm, right? It's not wrong. But you could get your badminton racket and decide to use it to smack me across the face. Now, that would be wrong, wouldn't it? Right? It'd be wrong. Like, you, you just don't hit people with badminton rackets. Nature of swinging the racket isn't wrong, but to swing at someone's face would be. Now, you've got the nature, and then you've got the consequences. But what if you swung the badminton racket at my face and hit me, but your motivation wasn't to harm me? Perhaps there was a giant spider on my face. And you just decided, hey, Mikey, uh, and you panicked, and you grabbed your racket, and you hit. I would, I would I'd probably have, you know, I'd, I'd be understanding. You, know, you panicked, and you hit, you hit me across the face. That's fine. There's a spider. You're trying to, you're trying to save me. You weren't trying to harm it, you were trying to save me. You see, sometimes what's wrong or right isn't so clear-cut and obvious, is it? I mean, it, it's excessive, yes, using a badminton racket, but it's not always right or it's so clear. Nature, consequences, motivation. Israel is asking for a king. In itself, that's not wrong or evil, but the motivation behind it? You see, verse 7 explains 
By asking for a king, they're rejecting God as their king. How is that happening? Well, so far there's been a pattern. When something happens, the people cry out in prayer, and through their priests to God, they ask God to come and rescue them and deliver them. It's been how Israel has operated since the beginning. And that's, that's been working for them. It was only one chapter before, in chapter 7, where we understand that we saw this happen. The Philistines, they're going up against Israel in battle. In chapter 7, verse 8, I got it on the screen as well. It's a long one. Let me read it. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. That day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up before Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Right, that's just one chapter before. Samuel raised the stone, named it Ebenezer, right, to remember the God who helps. Chapter 8, they don't want to operate like that anymore. If, if we just have an earthly king, we don't need to keep crying out to God. It's so much more efficient. I love efficiency. And this would be so much more efficient. Having an earthly king, a king like the nations around us, a king that will take care of us, a king that will protect us, a king that will provide for us, keep us safe lead us to flourish, an earthly king who will give us everything we need. You see what they're asking for? No longer do they want to live by faith in God, but by sight. They want to rely on an earthly king rather than a heavenly king. Their request is an expression of really their failure to trust God, and their motivation and intention was a rejection of him. You see what's going on in the heart of Israel? They functionally are saying, God, you are not enough for us. We want more. We want a human king like everyone else around us. God, God, God speaks to them. He, gives them the, he, he shares with them the consequences of the, re, the request through Samuel. You, know, you want a king, but a king, you don't know what you're asking for. A king will take. So he responds to them, verse 10 to 18. I won't read it all, but we hear a lot about how this king isn't as good as they think he'll be. They'll think they'll have more freedom. They think they'll have more security, more protection. But in fact, this king will be a king that will take and take and take. Five times, I counted it for you, five times. Verse 11, he will take your sons. They'll be soldiers and servants in his armies. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to cook and bake. And verse 14, take the best of your vineyards and fields. Verse 15, a tenth, he'll take a tenth of your produce, finances and livestock. Your own servants, he'll take to make his own, to give to his own officials. Essentially, the people will be slaves to this king. Remember the last time they were under a king? It was Egypt in Exodus. They were slaves under this king. They've already forgotten that, what it's like to be under a human king. And this is one of those moments right, where God knows and can see the bigger picture, but they're so narrow-minded, even naive. Right? One of those instances where, where you're thinking, man, you don't know what you're asking for. You really don't know what you're asking for, do you? Uh, I, I was reminded of the Little Mermaid story because it's being advertised right now, the new one. But you know the story, hopefully. The Little Mermaid, Ariel, she asked Ursula, the, the, the sea witch, to make her a human, give her legs for three days in exchange for her voice. And this, it's this naivety of this young Ariel that only I know now as an adult. Oh, man, Ariel, you don't know what you're asking for. Surely, as a kid, you also, Ariel, you don't know what you're asking. This guy, Eric, 
isn't worth it. But isn't that it for Israel? They're thinking of what a king, having a king would give them. But God's response is, you don't know what you're asking for. Having an earthly king will not be characterized by giving, it'll be characterized by taking. But what's even greater, that what will be taken is really their relationship with God. The day you cry out to God, God will not respond anymore. Verse 18, it says that when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. There are consequences. You have made your choice. You have chosen a human king and in turn rejected your God as king. Yet still, they hear this warning and they continue to ask for a human king to rule over them. Now, doesn't that sound so familiar? Yes, we're not ancient Israel, and none of us probably care. None of us probably care too much for the coronation of King Charles, but we might, we might not be asking for a human king to rule over us, but we functionally, day by day, don't we live lives that choose self-rule over God's rule? To live in a way where we're the kings, we ourselves are the kings or queens that sit on the throne, rejecting God as our king? No longer asking for him to deliver us because, you know what, I'm, I'm smart enough to figure this out on my own. I'm competent. I'm skilled. I'm charismatic and popular and good-looking and talented. And everyone around me has recognized that too. I can achieve more, flourish more by my own devices. Self-rule tells us I don't need God. I'm capable without him. And everything I've got or earned and will continue to be earned or achieved, I can do that without God. I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you do say God is king. You acknowledge that with your lips. But functionally and in your request before God, in the way that you pray, the way you ask him for things, your desire for more has led you really to substitute God as king with something or someone else. Think about it. When God was seen as their king, they, uh, was, was, they, they turned to him in times of worship and joy, in times of distress and need. But what do we do in times of need? What do we do uh, when, who, what, or who do we turn to in, in our worship? Too often our hearts are these like idol factories. They're, they're manufacturing idols daily, hoping that our careers, our hobbies, our, our money, our sex, our status, our popularity, our ideologies even, all those things, they'll be the source of our pleasure and delight. We allow these things that are, that are good to become ultimate, ruling our hearts, directing our thoughts, shaping our lives so that they, they take the throne and the functional place of king over our hearts. Don't we ask for that? Sometimes we ask God, God, if we just have this one thing, we'll feel protected. If we just have this one thing, we'll feel safe. We'll feel like we can thrive in life. We pray for it. We ask for it. And aren't we just like Israel at times? God, give us a king to rule over us. Asking God to take a back seat and in effect rejecting his reign and rule over our lives. It's easier to live by sight rather than by faith, isn't it? And we look around at those, the other nations around us who seem to be living the good life, their social lives, their careers, their popularity, their wealth, their freedoms. Man, it's so easy to to walk past neighbors' lawns and just go, wow, they have such manicured lawns. How do you have time for that? (laughs) And and I just think, man, I'd love to have a life where I could have time to look after I don't, but you know... It's nice. And we think that, God, I want what they have. 
I want to be like the nations around me. And we do that. To, and, we, it for, and we forsake God, don't we? We're willing to give up God, to give up church, give up worshipping Him, to take hold of those other things. And we conform and we reject. So we can be like the nations around us. Isn't that what sin ultimately is? A rejection of God as King. When we do that, we're substituting Him for something or someone else, aren't we? Things that promise so much yet ultimately deliver so little. Things that might only be temporary for a season. This short momentary life. Yet things that we're so willing to sacrifice so much for. Even sacrifice our faith in God. For a king that will just take and take and take. What does it look like to have faith in God? It sounds hard, doesn't it? It looks like walking into the unknown at times. A life that might be unpredictable, where the outcome might not be as tangible, where instant gratification instead looks like delayed gratification, where we're surrendering the reins of control over to someone else, where our future is in, the, is, is in his hands, and where we entrust it to him. And it sounds daunting. It comes at a cost. But even if it does, this king isn't one that will take from you. He will generously give. He will generously give, even to the point of giving his own life on the cross. You see, God has prepared a king for the people. A great king who rules the world. His name is Jesus. He sits on the throne. God's appointed king. A king that won't take, take, and take. But a king who will give and give and give generously and sacrificially. In Mark 10, chapter, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Isn't the way that you see Jesus, isn't the way that the Scriptures depict him through the Scriptures, isn't it characterized by giving? He gives sight to the blind. He gives healing to the sick. He gives hope to the hopeless. He gives forgiveness to the sinner. He's all about gracious, abundant giving, isn't he? To the point he gives his very life for the people who were once God's enemies. The king who's, who lays down his life for you and I so that we could know God. A life-giving king who protects, who keeps us safe, who has fought the enemy for us, who loves us and sacrificially gives up his life, defeats Satan, sin and death, so you and I could have life. Not just abundant life now, but abundant life forever. Because this king gave his life as a ransom for many. He pays the debt. He gives us forgiveness. His perfect holy life was substituted for our unrighteous, broken, the sinner redeemed to God. What other king could offer you more? The things we follow, the things that we give allegiance to in this life other than God, their promises, they're thin. They pale in comparison, don't they? When we choose to rule over ourselves, let the sin of our hearts reign, aren't we often left in misery? Aren't we often left without purpose and even more insecure than when we started, down a path of ultimate destruction, eternally separated? That's where it leads to eternally separated from everything good that is found in a relationship with God. But God has given us King Jesus. He is unlike the other kings, the kings of the nations around us. He's a king that will lead us deeper into a relationship with God forever. If you're not a Christian here, will you follow this king? I want to encourage you to consider that. A generous king that gives. Or will you continue to, to reject him and substitute him with something or someone else that has a throne, that is on the throne over your life? If you're a Christian in the room, then how do you see Jesus? Is he Lord and King over your life? 
I know for many Christians, it's when you accept the gospel, when you accept Jesus, the first thing you confess right is, Jesus is my Savior. He saves me from my sin. That's great. But do you also surrender your life to Him as Lord and King? That's the hardest part, isn't it? Of course, I'll take the salvation part. But to allow Him to reign and rule over us, our goals, our ambitions, our desires, our livelihood, our relationships, our careers, our finances, our time, our families, our entire lives. Does he have authority over your life? Or is it simply lip service that we offer to him? Of course, every Christian wants Jesus to be our savior. But do we also treat and respond to him, respond to him as our king and lord? That's what the Israelites had to realize. It's not until chapter 12, a few chapters later, that they get the picture. Samuel calls him to repentance and faithful obedience. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12 on the screen. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Friends, you know, Samuel here, he's talking about repentance, isn't he? Turn, turning away and obedience to the king. For us, friends, we look to Jesus. We repent of our sins and we look to our king. And we consider the great things he has done for us. The generous, loving sacrifice on the cross. The one who helps us in our greatest need. How much more will he now save us from what is to come in this life? He truly is the fount, right? The fountain of every blessing. He has raised the, the Ebenezer and gives us a sure hope. We can trust that he will lead us safely home. They're the words in, in, the, in the hymn that we sing, Come Thou Fount. There is a king named Jesus. He secured eternity for us. He offers true freedom, safety, and security, unlike any other king can. He is the one worthy of our worship, of our allegiance, of our trust. Will you faithfully serve him? You know, the, the, the story about the radium girls, it's really sad. It's actually a really sad story. There's these young women, you know, starting from like age 14, 16, they're working in these watch factories with this radiation poisoning. They got really, really sick. They'd lose teeth. They'd get anemic. They'd get ulcers, bone fractures, bone cancer. Many lost the use of their jaws. It would dislocate from the rest of their skull. Many eventually died from that radiation poisoning. And the companies, they covered it up. They kept people quiet. The women were told it was just a virus, possibly syphilis, because I was going around at the time. The lawsuits began in the 1920s, but it wasn't until the 1960s, many years later, that radium became banned. You see, what was once all the rage later was realized to be toxic, something that led to death. Friends, while so much of our world around us will market it to you as, as life-giving things like sex and success and status, peel back the layers. And without God, see too that it will ultimately lead us to death. Who or what is on the throne over our lives? Let's not reject, but instead put our faith and trust in the King, our Lord Jesus, who generously and sacrificially gives himself to secure for us the freedom and safety we so desperately seek. Let's pray for that now.
Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he's a king that doesn't just take and take, but he's a king that has, has given so much. He's given ultimately his life for us on the cross so that we could have life, so that we could have a relationship with you, so that we could know you, the source of goodness, the source of freedom, the source of, of, of security and purpose and love. We pray, Lord, that knowing that relationship with you, knowing that that's what we've gained uh, through Christ, through his sacrifice for us, that it will lead us to repentance and obedience. All the things that he's done, may it lead us to a, to a, to a life that honors you and worships you as our king, as our God, and as our savior. Help us to be a people, Lord, that, that want to make your name big in the world. A people, Lord, who, 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 who want to faithfully serve you. And we pray that, Lord, as we do that, your name will be made great. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.